Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the market appears to be pricing in three rate cuts for the remainder of 2019. I guess the only real question is, at the next meeting, will it be 25 basis points or 50? Uh, to get a sense of what to look for when the Fed does meet, uh, we welcome Neil Dutta uh, from Renaissance Macro Research. He is the head of economics there. Neil, thanks so much uh, for joining us. So what is your sense that when we, when the Fed does meet on the 31st, uh, will they cut by 25 or 50? What is your sense, Neil? Uh, my sense is that they cut by 25. Um, I think first, um, you know, historically, if you look at it, uh, you typically get 50 basis point cuts going into a recession or we have some sort of, um, you know, crisis on our hands. Um, we don't have either of those things at the moment. Um, so this looks like a 25 basis point cut it is probably um, what's more likely. At the same time, I mean, if you just sort of read the uh, the Fed speak that we've seen, I mean, you have the most dovish members calling for a 25 basis point cut. So if you can't convince them of a 50 basis point move, um, you know, I think it's, it's it's pretty unlikely. So I think the first go is probably a 25 basis point cut at the end of the month. So, Neil, I'm curious what your impression is just generally of where we are in the economic cycle, because we are getting these bank earnings and they show a very strong consumer, yet uh, relatively muted capital markets activity. Is there some kind of leading indicator that you see in there of businesses perhaps slowing some of their big moves uh, while the consumer stays strong right now? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't. Um, I can't speak, uh, Lisa, specifically to uh, to bank earnings, but uh, I mean, that my, my sense is basically that um, you know these issues that we've been talking about a lot in the macro space, you know, trade tensions, um, you know, weak overseas activity. Um, you know, my sense is that probably impacts. Um, you know, medium and large sized firms more than it does domestic consumers. And so, um, and you're seeing that largely reflected in the data. Uh, business fixed investment has been quite sluggish, but consumer spending has been quite good. Now, of course, um, you know, at some point, something's going to have to give. If final demand is holding up reasonably well, uh, you know, then businesses are going to have to play catch up. And, um, and that means that you, you'll, you may see sort of a, a pickup in, in investment activity uh, as, uh, as firms sort of realign well, but, um, themselves with, with final demand. Go ahead. But, but, Neil, I mean, you could go either way here, right? So businesses may have to play catch up with the consumer and invest more. Or you could say the other way around. The consumers will have to catch up with the businesses if the businesses aren't investing and aren't necessarily hiring more people or even cutting in the face of some of these trade tensions, right? I mean, it could go either way. Okay, how no? did that, Lisa, how did that work in 2015 and 2016? You want to make that mistake again? I mean, I think consumers ultimately are the uh, sort of main driver, the primary driver of uh, dynamics. You know, I mean, consumer spending tends to lead investment, um, even when you look at, you know, sort of just changes in, in, in growth dynamics. So, um, and, uh, you know, even when you look at investment spending in the U.S., it's, it's, um, 
I mean, compare it now uh, to, to how it was uh, when we actually did have a CapEx recession, which was in 2015, 2016. CapEx is holding up reasonably well, all things considered. I mean, we, we're here talking about, um, you know, how terrible things are uh, in the global economy with the stock market at all-time highs and, you know, all this trade uh, trade uncertainty. And even then, um, you know, investment spending is still uh, holding up reasonably well. So, you know, the fact that U.S. investment spending is doing so much better than many other places in the world tells you that there's already something going on with respect to those companies, respond, with, with respect to firms responding to final demand. So, um, you know, you're not seeing big declines in employment. Uh, you're seeing employment continue to expand. You're seeing consumers um, continuing to spend money, and it's that final demand that firms ultimately have to respond to. So, Neil, one of the things that the Fed uh, is looking at is inflation. Where are we right now with the inflation outlook in the U.S.? Um, you know, I mean, I think inflation is running persistently below the Fed's target. Uh, you know, I think if you have, like, if you look at it, you know, very, very near term, I mean, it's pretty clear that, uh, you know, the Fed's transitory story that they had been sort of pitching for a few months there, I mean, that's actually kind of worked out. I mean, inflation has, you know, core inflation has popped up a bit, but it's not enough to kind of, you know, change the underlying story about inflation. Um, inflation is persistently below 2%, and that means that, uh, you know, in my view at least, uh, you know, the benefits of the Fed doing something here in terms of, um, you know, accommodating, um, you know, outweighs the costs. So it, you're bullish. You're very bullish, it sounds like. And I'm curious when you think that things... Well, yeah, I mean, you're welcome, right? I mean, you know, <laughs> yes. I, I, Neil, I, I, I love I, it. I, Absolutely love it. Um, it's a I, I, <laughs> happy Wednesday, I, Neil. Uh, I do want to look ahead, though, and wonder, you know, when you see this uh, credit cycle perhaps aging, because people have been saying we're in the ninth inning for the past six years. And I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what will it what it will actually take to get there? What in terms of credit? I mean, um, or the business cycle. I mean, when are we going to actually see a downturn? When is when are things going to be looking less rosy? Um, well, I mean, I think when you have a uh, sharp upturn in real interest rates, uh, you know, then I think that would be something that would that would concern me. Um, but at the moment, I mean, you still have you know, nominal growth running well above the um, level of overnight interest rates. I mean, that, that's that's as reasonable an indication as any that the, the, the business cycle still has room to run. Um, you know, you, you have, uh, you know, when you take a look at sort of the, the kind of classic sort of checkboxes that people have when they want to make a recession call. Um, they're not there. No, they're not. And, yeah. um, and so... Uh, it's going to be a while. Uh, yeah, and I just think that the housing market in the U.S. is recovering, and it's really unusual to see, uh, you know, some kind of a big downturn in the economy with residential, with residential investment accelerating. Neil Dutta, thank you so much. Love having you on. Neil Dutta, head of economics for uh, Renaissance Macro Research, joining us, seeing positive signs ahead. Well, it has been obvious for some time that President Trump is not a fan of the U.S. Federal Reserve and its chairman, Jay Powell. The question is whether the president's tweets and other commentary influences the Fed. Uh, to get some analysis of this, we welcome our next guest, Christopher Condon. Christopher is a reporter for Bloomberg News covering the Federal Reserve. Chris, thanks so much for joining us from Washington. So let's go to that big question. To what extent, if any, do you think... President Trump's commentary and tweets 
about Jay Powell, about the Federal Reserve, influences the Fed at all? I really don't think it has that much influence. Uh, the Fed has a pretty clear process. It goes through a very rigorous and intense process uh, to prepare for each of the FOMC meetings. They happen eight times a year. And it's a, it's a big deal. And the participants have to really have their act together um, when they come and make arguments at that table about what they should do with policy. And uh, by all accounts, uh, current members, former members, uh, people who understand this process, staff people, politics just doesn't have a place in there. Now, at the same time, we have to grant that, you know, these are human beings. Uh, they don't sit there talking about the president's pressure, but they, it, they must feel it. They really see the tweets. They see the news about it. Uh, and if anything, you know, um, former senior staff have told me it may actually make it harder for the president to get what he wants when a decision is a real close call. Well, so let's hold, well, hold on a go second. Ahead, okay, Lisa, but yeah. before we get into you know the idea that they might try to rebel against him uh, and show that they're independence by not doing what he wants in on the margins. I want to talk about moves that President Trump can actually make that economically would create a better picture for a rate cut or further rate cuts. And I'm talking about tariffs because President Trump mm -hmm. is cutting out now, uh, coming out now and threatening additional tariffs in China, saying he can levy them whenever he wants. And a lot of people are saying, you know, is this perhaps an effort to push the Fed into cutting rates even more ahead of the 2020 election. In other words, that the Fed would be compelled to do so from an economic perspective, even though it's a politically driven economic perspective. Yeah, that it does seem like a bit of a circular. I'm not sure how strategically he thinks about the, what the, he wants the Fed to do when he considers imposing tariffs on China. There's a whole other agenda there, obviously, with respect to our trade relations with China and what's he, what he wants to achieve there. Um, that may be putting too many pieces in play at once. It, it certainly is true that the Fed has to deal with the reality of those tariffs and the extent to which they uh, hurt the economy. They certainly are hurting business sentiment and the way uh, companies think about investing and hiring. That seems to be showing up. So it is factoring in to their analysis of whether the economy may need a rate cut or not. That's for sure. So, Chris, one of the issues I think is probably maybe even more uh, potentially impactful on the Fed um, than tweets is, you know, kind of an effort on part of the president to, you know, arguably, quote unquote, pack the Fed with uh, nom with uh, people that are more am amenable to his uh, easing of Fed that's policy. Right. So give us a sense of kind of where that stands within the Fed. How, how are they that's viewing right. it? That is that is, represents a big turn of events. It happened gradually, and I'm told that has upset folks inside the Fed much more than the barrage of tweets and comments attacking the Fed over monetary policy. It represents a serious potential threat in a couple of ways. First of all, it could be a direct uh, a way to get political partisans inside uh, the FOMC. Uh, you know, of course, that he, Trump made uh, a number of nominations, some of which they cut through, that were entirely conventional and have he support, helped the Fed. Uh, but this year, the nominations or the people considered for nominations has changed. Uh, currently, we have a couple people, uh, and one, one person in particular represents this kind of change. Her name is Judy Shelton. She has been an economic advisor to Trump during the campaign. 
Um, she's a she is a I would say a classic libertarian thinker and author. Uh, has been a long-standing um, advocate of the gold standard. Now she's been talking, despite that background, strangely, has been talking about wanting to lower interest rates. So that makes people at the Fed think she represents just a sort of partisan loyalty to the president. And if confirmed, that puts that partisan political agenda potentially right inside the rate-setting meetings. And second, um, she also uh, just really does not seem to agree with the fundamental mission of the Central Bank of the United States. She does not think they should be setting a benchmark interest rate to guide the market. Well, uh, but in, in fairness, right now, mm-hmm. a lot of people in the market are very unclear of what the Fed's mandate actually is, because it was on one at one point uh, inflation. At one point, it was employment. At one point, people are speculating it's just keep the markets propped up. Well, the law is pretty clear. They have a dual mandate to keep prices stable through their inflation target and to maximize uh, employment in a sustainable way. Um, it can't be much clearer than it is in the law. Um, and, of course, as, as uh, economic and financial conditions change, um, the Fed focuses on one area or another. If they're meeting one mandate, then they, they, they look at the other and how they can try to guide the, the economy back to a point where they're meeting both of those targets. Um, and, of course, when it comes to, you know, uh, Judy's argument about uh, the market should be setting rates, it, it, I don't think it can be reasonably said that the, the Fed just sets a rate and expects everyone to fall in line. Actual borrowing costs are kind of a, a result of a dance between the Fed and the markets. They're very much listening to each other. Um, so her, her thinking is a bit more fundamentalist, I think, and, and, and does, wh- whether it's right or wrong, uh, the bottom line is it really disturbs folks at the Fed. Christopher Condon, thank you so much, uh, as always, uh, for joining us, as well as for your Bloomberg Business Week piece about just the political pressure on the Federal Reserve and whether it will actually have any impact on their decision making. It looks like it may not, despite the fact that the pressure is rising from President Trump. Chris Condon of Bloomberg News. Well, we have red on the screen as Greg reported, but let's see where the action is uh, in small caps with Bloomberg Stocks Editor Dave Wilson. Dave, what are you looking at? I'm looking at more red than I'm seeing with the larger companies. That's for sure. The Russell 2000 index down seven tenths of a percent. Uh, the S&P 500 is lower by just three tenths of a percent. One of the Russell's steepest declines belongs to Beyond Spring, whose ticker is BYSI. The cancer drug developer has fallen more than 15% after raising $35 million in a share sale, representing more than an 8% stake. Inovio Pharmaceuticals, ticker INO, has dropped 14%. The drug developer ended research on a bladder cancer treatment and said its workforce would be reduced by 28% as part of an effort to cut costs. Malincrot, ticker MNK, has lost about 9.5%. The drug maker ended a study of its biggest selling product, HP Actar Gel, as a treatment for Lou Gehrig's disease. 
Now, the Russell's biggest gain belongs to Avro Bio, ticker AVRO. The stem cell therapy developer has risen more than 16%. Avro Bio raised $120 million by selling the equivalent of a 21% stake. And Maycom Technology Solutions, ticker MTSI, has added more than 8%. The chip maker was raised the equivalent buy from neutral at Piper Jaffray. David Wilson, thank you so much for being with us. Dave Wilson, uh, always with those great updates. Bank of America shares up a little bit, about four-tenths of a percent after reporting earnings uh, that had good, had bad. You basically could plug in the name of a number of different banks this uh, earnings season and have the same story told. Allison Williams joining us here. She is the hardest working woman at Bloomberg these days of Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Financial Analyst. So, Allison, what's the deal with B of A? So uh, net interest margin miss, uh, guidance coming down. That's similar to what we saw across the big four banks that that I cover. Um, But the differentiator has been uh, costs. And so for Bank of America, basically, they had said um, they expected costs to be flat this year. Now they're saying there may be some opportunity um, for those to come down. So offsetting the net interest margin uh, pain. Wait, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. Let's back up for a second. When they have opportunity to reduce those costs, is that another way of saying we can cut jobs? Well, it, it, it depends where the costs are coming from, right? So to some extent, um, they don't want to be cutting jobs in, in certain areas, right? Because there, there's a pickup in um, opportunity. So uh, mortgage banking is an area actually where you might be see some additions across uh, some of the companies. Wells Fargo yesterday also saying that was an area for, for higher costs. They're also saying they're not going to cut tech spending. So that's um, you know something that you don't want to see uh, banks doing, especially given sort of the battleground and some of the U.S. companies winning on that front. Um, but, you know, in terms of other areas, cutting back, you know, uh, Paul, you can remember the days when yep. um, you go through the department and everybody gets a little bit more focused on where, you know, certain expenses are coming from. And everybody just sort of keeps and keeps a closer eye in terms of what you're spending, what travel you're, you're doing, lunches? how necessary. <laughs> where you guys are going out for lunch. <laughs> Those were the days. The number of black cars that are (laughs) lined up outside um, the investment bank. So you guys have lived a different life than I have. That's all I can say. It was a different time. (laughs) So, yeah. So there are some expenses that vary, vary with revenue. And then there are some where you can be a little bit more efficient. And so technologies, uh, you know, we've been talking more recently about technology helping on the revenue front. But that's also helping on the efficiency front, right? So a mobile deposits are a great experience for the customer, but they're also like three cents on the dollar for some of these banks. Right. So, Allison, when I worked on the street, the, the big trading desks were really drivers of profitability, whether it's the you know fixed income trading desk, the equities, the commodities. Are we ever going to get back to a time on Wall Street where they can be consistently profitable and really drive some of the returns for these uh, big global banks? I think that, you know, one of the big changes is really the electronification. Um, and again, and, you know, Paul and I have, have, have been tortured by this throughout our careers in terms of seeing what's happened on the equities front, right? So um, a business um, that has really shifted over time to be more, uh, to be uh, traded a lot more through the electronic venue. And we're seeing a lot more um, progress on that front on the fixed income side. So I think as volumes continue to go electronic, that does, um, you know, obviously has has an impact as things go low touch versus high touch. 
Um, and in general, you know, the volatility, there, there are some cyclical factors that, that may get better in terms of volatility and quantitative easing, but the other big pressure is the pressure on customers, right? So passive versus active. You think, you know, an active customer is doing trades. They're pro providing flow for desks. A passive customer um, is generally not. And so I think that's, you know, hedge, hedge funds are another area where we've seen a lot of fee pressure. Less fees broadly for the industry is less revenue if your customers have less revenue to pay, you know, that's less uh, opportunity for you. Just real quick here. We talked earlier, uh, perhaps a year or two ago, that the banks would have to pass along some of the increase in uh, interest rates to their depositors. Was there any talk about that this time around? The increases that you've seen. So you've seen increases in, in two businesses. Uh, the wealth business and the, um, you know, commercial small uh, business side of things, right? So that's where you get people where sort of the, the, sh the shopping around is going to pay off. So it, when you have, you know, 10 customer, let, let's say, you know, 10 customers with $100 versus one customer, 1,000, you know, multiply that, right? So someone with a million dollars is going to shop around, whereas someone with like $1,000 isn't likely. So when you look at um, the core franchises, you're still seeing, you know, things pretty sticky there, but you are seeing a pickup in terms of, um, as I said, the wealth, small business, you know, Citigroup also had sort of a notable yep. pickup. They're building digital. So when you're going to go digital, again, you're probably paying up for those deposits. Allison William, thank you so much. Allison covers all things banks for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. funds are having a very good year by historical standards, although I will note that equity funds are still lagging the S&P 500, the broader market. Here to get a sense of which strategies are performing better, we welcome uh, Don Steinbrugge. Uh, Don is the uh, chairman uh, and founder and CEO of Agecroft Partners. Uh, John, uh, Don joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Don, thanks so much for joining us. Again, just give us a sense, just kind of we're six months into the books for the year, how are the hedge funds broadly defined doing? So from an absolute standpoint, they're doing the best they've done in 10 years. The average hedge fund for the first six months of the year was up 7.58% uh, based on the HFRI index. And that's significantly better than the acid-weighted index that is dominated by large hedge funds. Uh, smaller hedge funds outperform large hedge funds for the first six months of this year. So... Here's my question, and this is going to be the question that everyone's wondering, which is, is 2 and 20 worth it? I mean, it's not really 2 and 20 anymore, the fee structure, because it's come down dramatically. But if these hedge funds are performing the best on an absolute level and still underperforming the broader market, is it worth it? So you, when you think of, first of all, relative to fees, I don't think anyone should pay 2 and 20 unless they find just an absolutely fabulous hedge fund manager. There's no reason to do it. There's a lot of hedge funds that are 
offering founder share fees at one in 10. Fees matter. And if you're analyzing a hedge fund, you should focus on fees. All things being equal, always go with the manager that has less fees. But looking at hedge fund performance, you know, hedge funds are a, a fund structure. They're not an asset class. So you really got to look at what the strategy is and what the underlining benchmark is for that specific strategy. And although I think most hedge funds are not very good, there are a lot that have outperformed indices and I think add value. So yes, I think there, there is a place for hedge funds in um, sophisticated, large institutional investors' portfolios. So what are some of the strategies uh, that are particularly performing well here in the first half of the year? Well, you know, obviously, anything to do with the equity markets did very well. You know, the um, average long-short equity manager was up 9.44%. But what I think is really interesting is, for the first time in a long time, fundamentally-oriented hedge funds did well. Uh, the average fundamental manager, and you got to remember, they only have about half the exposure of the, of the broad market, were up 10.88%, and they significantly outperformed systematic uh, long-short equity managers that were only up about 6.91. So fundamentals for the first time in a long time worked. It'll be interesting to see if they work going forward. You know, some sectors within the long-short equity area, sector managers did pretty well. Those focused on healthcare, technology, were up over 11%. And from a regional perspective, uh, managers that focus on China were up 13.1%. I can touch on a couple others if, if well, I have time. You know, I, I want to actually ask something about what you said earlier, which is there are good fund managers out there. And if you find them, they can add some real value to your portfolio. How do you judge, how do you determine whether a fund manager is good or not? Because it's not just past performance. It, it is definitely not past performance. So I think you got to use multiple factors in, in analyzing a hedge fund. I got think you need to look at the organization and make sure that it's institutional quality. You got to go to the office, meet the people there. I think you need to look at the people managing the portfolio. What are their bios look like? You know, what is it, what edge do they have to implement their process? You need to listen to what their investment process is. Can they articulate what inefficiency in the marketplace they're trying to take advantage of and clearly explain how they're able to take advantage of that inefficiency? You need to look at risk control. As far as performance goes, you need to decouple it. You need to really understand that was their performance, but why did they do what they did? And how is that going to strategy going to do going forward? For example, you know, this year, th there's been broad rallies of the fixed income marketplace. You've had um, the 10-year uh, treasury rally by, you know, over 60 basis points. You've had high yield spreads come down almost 150 basis points. The more risk you took in the fixed income portfolio, the better you did. But that doesn't mean you're going to do better going forward. So you need to understand why performance was what it was and also have some idea of, you know, what you think the markets are going to do going forward and how that strategy in a stress-tested environment will do going forward. So it's interesting. So they don't outperform. So the equity uh, hedge funds, kind of about half what the S&P has done on the upside this year. How about when we have a down market? Do they do better than the market? Because I'm wondering what I'm paying for again. I'm not getting performance on the upside, but am I gonna, are they going to protect me on, on the downside? Well, well, first of all, on the upside, I do think they're – uh, when you start looking at niche-oriented long-short equity strategies that focus on more inefficient markets, I think they've done a better job beating 
whatever the relevant benchmark is. For example, if you go over to Asia, uh, managers that focus on Asia or China um, have some of them have outperformed their indices by very large margins over long yeah. periods of time. You know, if you're talking about U.S. equity managers that are focusing on, you know, the apples and the very large cap stocks, I mean, it's really hard to get an information advantage, and most of those have underperformed. Yeah, but. Just uh, real quick here, we just have about 30 seconds and, and a listener is writing in who does manage a lot of money and is in, in, in charge of uh, determining what investments there are. And he was asking how long of a track record do you require? You know, I, I think the longer the track record, the better. And I, I would want to see a track record at least three years. Um, and, you know, you just need to make sure that when you analyze a track record, you understand what a track record is. There's a lot of discrepancies as far as showing net performance and what fees people are using to show net performance versus what their normal benchmark is. Don Steinbrugge, thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Don Steinbrugge is Agecroft Partners founder and CEO joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.